The Lament of the Reed. Welcome to the Explore Words Discover Worlds podcast, presented by Bradford Literature Festival. This episode is an insight into one of the most quoted and studied poems in Muslim tradition, The Lament of the Reed. The essence of Rumi's manuscript, Matnavi, is contained in this poem, which describes the anguish of the reed upon being separated from the reed bed a metaphor for the sorrow that the soul feels when separated from the divine. Recorded live at the 2022 Bradford Literature Festival, author Dr. Rezi Sharkazemi talks about the relationship between physical and spiritual pain and the intensity of heartfelt supplication, the ultimate peridium being Imam Ali's famous supplication, Dua Kumal. Good afternoon, everyone. Um, just as a disclaimer, uh, for those of you who were at the previous session here, uh, I am the real Saeed Khan. Um, uh, Akhil Ahmed uh, likes to toy with the idea of being me, uh, but um, he's, as Robert Frost once said, and miles to go before I sleep. Um, well, we're going to hear about a different poem t- uh, poet today, uh, and that, of course, is uh, Jalal al-Din Rumi. Uh, for those of you who have been noticing a, uh, a very, uh, fairly consistent uh, thread throughout the festival, uh, Rumi is one of our major topics, one of our major themes, uh, celebrating uh, this great man's uh, poetry and uh, the contribution that he's made uh, far beyond uh, the Islamic hit. Uh, after 9-11, some of you might be aware, uh, Rumi was the best-selling poet in the United States. Uh, he uh, he had a revival in much the same way as Kate Bush is now with uh, running up that hill. Um, so it's just nice to see that maybe Rumi will make it to Spotify as well. Well, we have a real, uh, uh, a real treat uh, because we have an expert on, on Rumi and particularly this one poem, uh, Lament of the Reed. Uh, Dr. Reza Shah Kazemi is the founding editor of the Islamic World Report. Uh, he's currently the research associate at the Institute of Ismaili Studies uh, with the, within the Department of Academic Research and Publications. Holds degrees from Sussex and from Exeter University in International Relations and Politics, and his doctorate in Comparative Religion from the University of Kent, with specialties including Comparative Mysticism, Islamic Studies, Sufism, and Shiism. Uh, actually, I've been to the University of Kent. Nice, nice campus. Very, very nice. Uh, not too much going on there, so I mean, must have been really good to hone in your skills of mysticism and uh, and and all. Uh, so, if you'll permit me, I will. Uh, I'd like to read for you a translation of uh, Lament of the Reed, uh, especially for those of you for whom Farsi is uh, not necessarily a primary uh, language spoken. Now, listen to this reed flute's deep lament about the heartache being a part has meant. Since from the reed bed they uprooted me, my songs expressed each human's agony. A breast which separation split in two is what I seek to share this pain with you. When kept from their true origin, all yearn for union on the day they can return. Among the crowd alone I mourn my fate, with good and bad I've learned to integrate. That we were friends, each one was satisfied but none sought my secrets from inside. My deepest secrets in this song I wail, 
but eyes and ears can't penetrate the veil. Body and soul are joined to form one whole, but no one is allowed to see the soul. It's fire, not just hot air, the reed flutes cry. If you don't have this fire, then you should die. Love's fire is what makes every reed flute pine. Love's fervor thus lends potency to wine. The reed consoles those forced to be apart. Its notes will lift the veil upon your heart. Where's antidote or poison like its song? or confidant, or one who's pined so long. This reed relates a tortuous path ahead, recalls the love with which Majnun's heart bled. The few who hear the, the truths the reed has sung have lost their wits so they can speak this tongue. The day is wasted if it's spent in grief, consumed by burning aches without relief. Good times have long passed, but we couldn't care when you're with us our friend beyond compare. While ordinary men on drops can thrive, a fish needs oceans daily to survive. The way the ripe must feel the raw can't tell. My speech must be concise, and so farewell. Yeah, in English it doesn't do much to say wah wah. You save that for Farsi or for Urdu. That translation was by Jawid Mujadidi from Rumi, the Masnavi Book One of uh, the Oxford University Press, if you're interested in further translations on it. Um, a deeply plangent poem, one that seems to indicate separation, dislocation, and loss. Uh, at the festival, we have other themes, including partition, the 75th anniversary of it. And it speaks all these centuries later to something within the soul and something within the spirit about a sense of being separated almost violently torn apart as a reed is. So what is it about the lament of the reed? Well, um, there's a tremendous paradox in these lines that you've just read between the heart-rending pain that's experienced upon recognition of our existential state of separation from our source. It begins with that note, Vishnu as nay chon hekayat mikonad, as neyestan tamara obideand, as jodaiha shekayat mikonad, as neyestan tamara bobrideand, as nafiran mardozan nalideand, sinekaham sharhe sharhe as faraq. Now there's a tremendous paradox here that the poem begins with this cry of being separated from the reed bed from its home. And Rumi is saying here, the third line, that I want a breast that's torn to shreds by separation. Before I can even begin to give you the commentary on the pain of longing. So this is a kind of double, you know, a, 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 a doubling up of intensity of pain. And yet, 
the paradox comes because we know that Rumi is the great poet of ecstasy, of love. And that love and ecstasy expressed through the dance, through the samat, the whirling dervishes that we all see and, and hear and have become so popular throughout the world. People find it difficult to square these two aspects of Rumi, this extraordinary pain of separation on the one hand, and then the ecstasy of union on the other. And that's really what I wanted to talk about today. How do we bring these two dimensions together of, if you like, existential or better, ontological, not just that we're in existence we're separated, but ontologically, in terms of our very being, we are standing apart from the source whence we have sprung. He goes on to say that Harkas Kudurman as Aslehish Baz Juyad Ruzegare Vaslehish. Whoever has remained far from the source of his being is ever urging himself, looking to return to the union of his being or her being. So he's saying to us that unless we are aware of the distance between ourselves and our present state and our angelic, celestial, archetypal, quintessential, spiritual selves from whence we, whence we come, our home in paradise, unless we're aware of that existential separation, we won't even begin to understand what he's talking about in his commentary on the pain of longing. That the pain of longing is the pain of wanting to be reunited with the beloved. But we're not even going to begin to understand that until we feel this intensity of pain at recognition of our separation from our true selves. So, one of the ways in which he guides us along the path of reunion with our true selves is by referring repeatedly throughout the Masnavi, uh, but also in his book called Kitab Fihi Mafihi, which is a book of discourses translated by Abu as just the discourses of Rumi, but the title of the book just says, the book that contains what it contains. Because it's a series of discourses that Rumi gave, mostly in response to questions from his disciples. Occasionally just he would speak um, uh, in a spontaneous way about this or that subject. Um, and in that book he talks about the Blessed Virgin Mary. And as, as I say, throughout the Masnavi he refers to her and the pain of her suffering, also what her child, Jesus, represents. And in this book, Kitafihi Mafihi, he says that the following, which is really quite, uh, as I say, a shock for those of us who think of Rumi in terms of love and ecstasy and union. He speaks as follows. 
it is pain that guides a man in every enterprise. Now when Rumi uses the word man, we should remember that in those days to talk about mard or in Arabic rajul, it means a spiritually virile person. It doesn't mean man in a general sense at all. There's a, a famous hadith in which the Prophet وسلم, says that on the day of judgment, God will say, Ya ayyuhar rijal, O you men. And the first person who comes forward is the Blessed Virgin. But she, in a sense, is the embodiment, the personification of true spiritual virility, true power, and it had nothing to do with being a man in a gendered sense. It is pain that guides a man in every enterprise. Until there is an ache within him, a passion and a yearning for that thing arising within him, he will never strive to attain it. Without pain, that thing remains for him unprocurable. Whether it be success in this world or salvation in the next, though, now he goes into the question of the Blessed Virgin. Those pangs of Mary. Now, for those of you who may not know, in the Quran there is a passage about the birth of Jesus in the surah entitled Mary, Surah Maryam, which is surah number uh, 19. And there, I think before we go into this, I'll just recite for you a few verses from that surah. <laughs> Those verses are that when Mary, after having been told that she would be, uh, have a, a child, a pure child bestowed upon her, and she says, how can I have a child when no man has touched me? This is, the, this is what corresponds to the, uh, the narrative in Luke, in the Bible. It's, uh, the, but here the virginal response is, no one's touched me, how can I have a child? God says it will be. She becomes pregnant, she goes to a distant place, and then the Quran says something that you don't find in the biblical literature at all, which is the pangs of birth. The birth pangs drove her to the trunk of a date palm. And she cries out in agony, Mittu kabalahava, if only I had died before it had come to this. Wakuntu nasyan mansiya. And I'd been a thing utterly forgotten. I wish I was never born, in other words. I wish I'd been completely. In, in a kind of oblivion, this pain is so uh, agonizing. It's very, very, you know, it's gut wrenching the description of it. Then a voice comes to her from beneath her. So it's Jesus in the womb speaking to her and saying, Don't grieve, don't, don't worry, don't be concerned. Clutch 
this tree, the trunk of the tree, and shake it. Huzzi ilayki Susaqid alayki rutaban janiya. You will make ripe dates fall upon you. And it said that the, the tree was, was dead, but that when she shook it, it came to life and these beautiful, succulent, ripe dates, rutaban janiya. And look at, at your, beneath your feet, a rivulet will open up. So drink from the water, eat the dates, and be refreshed. So she's given an immediate consolation. But that pain is what Rumi is, is alerting us to and saying. Those pans of Mary brought her to the tree. And the tree which was withered became fruitful. The body is like Mary. He's saying to each and every one of us, your physical aspect is like the Mary of your being. It's full of, it's pregnant with the Jesus. And he says, every one of us has a Jesus within him. But until the pangs manifest in us, our Jesus is not born. If the pangs never come, then Jesus rejoins his origin by the same secret path by which he came, leaving us bereft and without any share in him, without any, it says here, portion of him, but it's like we have no way of participating in this. This is what Rumi calls the spiritual rebirth. It's the birth of the spirit within you, and he, this is what he's referring to as the Jesus of your spirit. It's the wiladat of the ruh, the birth of your spirit. But your body, that is the Mary of your being, first has to experience that pain. If you don't experience the pain, Jesus goes back. So again, Rumi's telling us, burn with this pain. And what is this pain that he's asking us to experience if we don't? Before we talk about the dancing and the singing of ecstatic union with God, we've got to understand how far we are from that source. So here, I just want to say a little thing about the Sama before proceeding. For those of you who don't know, Sama is an Arabic word from the root Sami'a, which means to hear. And it means the spiritual concert, the listening to music and instruments and song, the drum, and dancing to that music. It was a practice that you find throughout Sufism in all the different traditions. And it was looked on askance by many of the theologians, of course, and the jurists. But for Rumi, this was the heart and soul of his way of inviting others to participate in his ecstasy. But before you can do that, uh, we're told that the Sufi undertakes Sama only after years of spiritual poverty, of fasting, and spiritual retreats, going into isolation. Now, when we talk about retreats in traditional Islam and in the Sufism of Jalaluddin Rumi's time, the 13th century, we're talking about a very structured kind of spiritual retreat, an isolation that would send many of us today into insanity. It would unbalance us completely, to be put into a cell for 40 days and not seeing anybody, not speaking to anybody, 
no mobile phone, no contact with anybody for 40 days. Your food is brought to you. Often it's in a dark room. You may not even have natural light coming in. You can imagine how rigorous and grueling that kind of spiritual training is for the soul. What are you doing in that cell? Day and night, 40 days. You're just doing the five daily prayers, which only take a few minutes each. And what are you doing the rest of the time? You've got no books. What are you doing? You're just calling upon God. You're just saying, Allah, Allah, Allah. Day and night. Shahada, La ilaha illallah, Ya Rahman, Ya Rahim. Different names, you'll be given your instructions from your spiritual guide, what you should be doing. We can't do it these days. No one, very few people can go into that kind of retreat and come out sane, let alone enlightened. But Rumi was put into three of these consecutively. And he was still young and he was under the training of, of his master, Burhan al-Din. After 40 days, Burhan al-Din came to say, well, you know, come on, let, let's see what you've got from this retreat. He saw that Rumi was still in such a state of ecstasy. He thought, no, well, he needs another 40 days. And then another 40 days. So he went for 120 days before he came out. And when he came out, he, he wasn't kind of singing and dancing yet. He had just come out with a kind of incipient enlightenment. He became a great Sufi master. He could give discourses. He knew the truth. He had had tahqiq, muhaqqaq, the reality had come to him to some degree, so that he was on the one hand a very sober preacher of, he gave khutbas, he knew jurisprudence very well. He was in the sober school of Sufism. But then along comes Shams al-Tabriz. And he sets Rumi on fire. And according to Rumi's son, Sultan Valad, in his biography of his father, which he also put in a Mathnavi rhyming meter. He said, my father was a Sufi, he was a preacher, he was a jurist, he was a scholar. But then when Shams al-Tabriz came and set him on fire, he became a, a mad dervish, a dervish who didn't want to do anything except sing and dance all the time. He couldn't stop it. And this is when the poetry would come in an uncontrollable way. There was no way in which the room would sit down and think, well, you know, what shall I, I speak? He wasn't even particularly fond of poetry. It was just that God came to him and inspired him with his poetry. So overwhelmingly, powerfully did it come to him that at the end of a day when he had given poetry in Turkish or Persian or Arabic, he, he, he would come to him and flow through him and the disciples would say, Molana, can you remind us of what you said at the bathhouse earlier? It was a beautiful poem that you said in, in Arabic. What was it? He would say, I can't remember. That's true inspiration. It's not as if you thought about it. Ah, oh, yes, yes, let's think of that. He just it came to him and it went and he can't remember. So after that, his disciples insisted that he have with him someone who could immediately write in Turkish, in Persian and in Arabic. So they would have these preserved. And maybe that's why we got not just the Masnavi of 
24,000 verses. We've got the Divanishams, the Rubayat, all these verses that are, you know, the, the Masnavi compared to those is like a didactic epic poem. But these poems of ecstasy that's in the Divanishams of Tabriz, Persian speakers, very few understand what's really going on. They can just feel the, the vibration of the spiritual inspiration that come through these poems. But you ask them, well, what does it mean? They think, well, Allah, God knows best. I can make a guess at it. But what I do know is what I feel. And that is this poetry transforms me. It just gives me a taste, a volk, mazeh, of what it was that came to Rumi in these moments. So, uh, in the Mevlevi order, a disciple must serve, this is from Franklin Lewis, um, a book that he's written on Rumi, one of the greatest introductions. Franklin Lewis is one of the, the best scholars of, of Rumi in America. And he says that in the Mevlevi order, a disciple must first serve in the kitchen of the Khanika for 1,001 days before being accepted as a novice. So before you have anything to do with singing and dancing, you're told, go and work in the kitchen and give the food to the fuqara and the darvishes. Clean the latrines, the lavatories. Humble yourself. Serve everybody. Become nothing. Before you can realize that you are not just something, but you can say with al-halaj at the end of the path, and al-haq, I am God. I am the truth. But in order to get into the Anal Haq and make sure that you don't fall foul of the Ana Rabbukumul A'la, which Rumi juxtaposes throughout the Masnavi, that the great statement, Anal Haq, I am the truth, the Ana of Halaj was completely effaced through Fana, total spiritual extinction of the sense of individuality, so that the I that's saying I am the truth is God speaking through halaj, and that can only happen through fana, and fana extinction can only happen through faqr, poverty. You're aware of your ontological poverty, that you have nothing in your own account. But the Pharaoh who says, ana rabbukumul a'la in the Quran, that eye that says that is nothing other than the shaitan speaking, the devil. Iblis is the I that wants to make itself the supreme lord. So, um, there is a, uh, this is in the Masnavi, book 3, verses 95 to 97, about the meaning of the dance. And I'll, I'll read it for you in Persian first. Raks an jakon ke khud rabeshkani. Amdera az Incredibly powerful, these words about Rax is the word for dance. So he's saying, yes, dance. But only when you have mortified yourself, when you've broken yourself, literally, your chod, you've got a beshkan, break yourself, then start dancing. 
uh, Rax, the, it, the true men dance and wheel on the ground, the battleground. They dance in their own blood. They're the ones who have sacrificed their egotism, their egocentricity, their nafs, the nafs al-ammara bisu, the nafs that orders you, the soul that orders you to do three, to, to do evil things. Now, most of the faces I see here don't need to be told about the nafs al-ammara, the nafs al-lawama, the nafs al-mutma'innah. Am I right in thinking that all of you know what I'm talking about? If anyone doesn't, just raise their hand and I'll quickly go over. All right, so there are a few people. Yeah, well, the, uh, when Rumi, some, uh, often, when Rumi refers to the word nafs, it simply means the soul. But he speaks so badly about this soul that you have to understand that he's talking about what the Quran refers to as the nafs, al-nafs al-amara bisu'ah. The soul that incites or commands to evil. That's the lowest and the kind of raw state of pure egotism, vanity, pride, arrogance. The second stage of the soul is called the nafs al-lawama, the soul that blames itself. The soul that has become aware of its own tendencies towards evil, egotism and arrogance, and it is starting to engage in self-recrimination. Blaming itself, censuring itself, and telling itself, do this rather than that. It's the beginning of what the Prophet referred to as al-jihad al-akbar, the greatest jihad. He was asked, what is this greatest jihad? He said, it's the jihad against your own self, your nafs. And you will be engaged in this fight until you die. And the third state of the soul is called al-nafs al-mutma'inna, the soul that is at peace in the certainty of God. And that's basically the soul in which the spiritual self has become fully realized. So those are the three degrees of the soul. So when Rumi refers to the nafs without qualification, the soul, as being evil, he's referring implicitly to that lowest degree of the soul. So he's saying dance. When you have, these men dance in their own blood, when they have broken themselves, because they have freed themselves from their own hands, literally, and he's making a play on clapping of the hands and being free of one's own hand. In Persian, when you are free of your own hand, as dastekhod, rahashodi, when you have become free of your own hand, it means you've got free of your own egotism. When they're free of their own egotism, they clap their hands with joy. Chon jahand as naksekhod raksi konand. When they escape from their own imperfection, their naks, then they do the raks. He's making a rhyme here between the imperfection of the soul and the dance that expresses the celebration, the sheer exhilaration of being finally freed from one's own character faults, from one's own vices. So the dance of ecstasy comes at the very end of this process of spiritual training, 
as a kind of fruit. That when you finally realize, for example, something as simple as this it could be, when you finally have come to the realization that after years of struggle against your main vice, which was, let's say, miserliness, or impatience, or susceptibility to anger, whatever the vice may be, it's that one vice that it, once you can address it and overcome it, it has a kind of domino effect. And it gets rid of all of the other imperfections. That can only come through a miraculous, alchemical transformation wrought by divine grace. The divine grace will come to you, but only when you do something about it. You've gone into retreat, you've gone into the fasting, you've been addressing the faults of your soul. And then, when you finally have been given victory over the vice of your soul, through grace, what do you do? You dance for joy. I'm grieved on this now. There's one place in, in the Masnavi where Rumi says something quite extraordinary. Uh, it's in uh, book two, which I've got here from the Jadwadi, so I've, I've tried, it's, it's, and it's line 10. So I'm just going to read this. The bane of this world is desire, my friends. Renounce it and drink wine that never ends. Close tightly your mouth and you'll clearly find to that world open gullets make men blind. You vile mouth, you are nothing but hell's gate. This world's an intermediary state. But next to it there is eternal light. As pure milk flows near blood all day and night. Don't heedlessly step in this blood. Beware. Your milk will turn to blood once mixed in there. Adam took one step for enjoyment's sake and lost his seat above for that mistake. As if he were a demon, angels fled. How much he wept for just a piece of bread. Now what he's talking about here is, that he, although of course Adam's sin was to take the fruit from the forbidden tree, but he's using bread as a kind of symbol, that what Adam couldn't resist was something, he wanted to eat something. And here, Rumi is saying, the first two lines of verse 10, is saying that the afate indar, the ruin of this world, hawa va shahvatas. Now, hawa is the word for desire, but egotistic, conceited desire, arrogant, subjective desire that comes back to yourself, and shahvat, which is lust. So he's using this com combination of, of desire, thirst for one's own ego to be satisfied, with the lust that is there for one's body to be satisfied. He's putting the two together and saying that Adam's sin was a desire to appropriate to his own glory something that was forbidden to him. And what was forbidden to him? The tree that God said, don't approach that tree. 
And how did he succumb to the temptation to eat from that tree? It was Satan who, according to Quranic narrative, said, the only reason God hasn't allowed you to eat from that tree is that you, if you eat from it, you'll become immortal and you'll become like the angels. So Adam was lured into this uh, trap based on his own desire for an immortality that would go back to him. And this is the fundamental sin that we want this ego to survive forever and to be satisfied in its desires forever. And when we recognize this fact within ourselves, that our fall from Eden, that we're reenacting every single day with every decision that we take that's based on our egotistic desire for ourselves, we fall into that hell that is separation from paradise. So, when he says here, آفت این در هوا و شهبت است ورنه اینجا شربت اندر شربت است If you can get over your own ego, your egotistic desire and your lust, you can get over these two things which are the ruin of this world, what's the result? Sharbat andar sharbatas. It's syrup, it's sweet, sherbet, it's wine, within wine. It's pure ecstasy, pure joy. So this is why the darvish, who has been able to overcome whatever the most the vile aspects of his or her egotism may be, and realizes something tremendous that, oh my goodness, this world is paradise. It's just wine. Everywhere I look, my senses have come alive with a kind of archetypal, angelic perception instead of an egotistic, subjective, arrogant perception that everything I see around me is something I want to acquire and possess. Instead, everything I see around me and hear and taste is all inviting me to participate in a celestial ecstasy. So, how are we doing for time? It's 6.15. I think we probably would uh, go 10 minutes more and then we can open it up for questions. Actually, I wouldn't mind taking a question now okay. because you've been a very extraordinarily attentive, receptive, and patient audience. It's sort of pin drop silent <laughs> and it's making I, me... I'd like to please ask a question please, and also please, say please, we've please, been so quiet because it's fascinating, please. fascinating listening to you because... Well, you know, I mean, you, you kind of... The, the energy the coming from all of you is, yeah. is so, so wonderful as well. My, my question is kind of... The, uh, there's a um, poem, I think it's called The Artful um, Idol. There's a, there's a stanza in that poem that fascinates me. Which one? Uh, it, um, it's, it's the Artful Idol. I, I, I'm the not sure. Artful but Idol. Yeah. And there's a stanza. It's Hud Guza, Hud Guza, So he. I don't know that one. You don't know that one? Okay. That was, that was going to be my question, but uh, if you don't know it. Well, that's an easy question, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> Next, please. Do you, have, do you have a backup poem? Do you have a backup poem? <laughs> no, no. Oh, okay. Okay. 
uh, we have three questions here. Should we go? Mine was a simpler one. I just Please, please. Well, it couldn't be simpler than that one. Uh, because yeah, the answer is, I don't know. Um, um, you know, um, I do have uh, various translations of uh, Masnavi. Yeah. But is there one, because my Persian is very, uh, uh, you know, it's not very good, um, of Diwani Shamsit Abrezi. Just, justice to the, because it's a very, uh, um, uh, you know, yeah. it's sim a lot of symbolism in there. Well, you know, I, I would say that um, the two volumes translated by Arbery are probably the, the best to go for, because there are some translations, there are many translations out there, but Arbery has selected poems. And if, if you have enough Persian, you can go back to the original, but those selections in two volumes are wonderful you'll get everything that you need from Arbery's two-volume translation. I think it's just called Songs from the Divani Shams. Thank you. So we have a question here, and then we have a question here. Yeah. Yeah. Hi. I don't really know where to start, because I've written down so many things, so just bear with me for a moment. So uh, I'm a psychotherapist, right. and I'm, I'm kind of really interested in Jung and Sufism, and I saw your bit on YouTube with the Jung guy. Charles really Upton, was Sorry? Charles Upton? Yes, and yeah. I, I was quite fascinated by that. Right. So, the question is that Jung talks a lot about the shadow, and he talks a lot about the integration of the shadow. Right. Whereas within Sufism, I read it as the idea of fana, annihilation of the shadow and the ego. And I'm just wondering if you could comment a little bit on the difference between right. the two. Right, well that's, uh, I need to look to my boss over there, the Green Knight and ask if I can uh, launch into that. But uh, I think we may have to devote the rest of the session to that. The, reason, the reason I ask yeah. is because when Jung talks about the shadow, it seems a little more forgiving of an ego in the negative sense. Not to say it's better, but when we talk in Islamic communities and we talk about the idea of ego, we're less forgiving and probably a lot more strict and earlier on in the lecture when you were talking about the idea of um, spiritual poverty yeah. and this kind of idea of learning through suffering, that seems to be kind of advocated, which is inherent to life, I think. But I, I don't know, maybe I'm going too far, but I just, I just wanted some thoughts, right. really. No, well, I've got actually a card which I, well, I was going to address this sort of question. Um, but before I go into that, uh, th I just hear that it was a third question, wasn't there? Right here. Yeah. Uh, there's a mic coming around. So thank you. I really enjoyed that. Um, <coughs> excuse me. You might be going to touch upon this, but um, you know, in talking about uh, the the Blessed Virgin's agony and the ecstasy of the separation. Um, I noticed in the synopsis of your talk that you had also drawn the parallel in the Shiite tradition mm. of uh, Imam Ali. Right. Uh, and I was just wondering if you could expand yeah. on that. Thank you very much for, for prompting me on that because it feeds in very nicely to this, this question. Um, and so what I think I'll do is before I go to the card, I will... Um, this is... Uh, a, a book of supplications from Imam Ali, Ibn Abi Talib. Uh, it's published by the Muhammadi Trust. And this particular copy was given to me by the wife of one of the greatest scholars of Rumi, called Lenny Lewison. Mm. 
He was a great friend of mine, and I learned a tremendous amount from him. And on the penultimate meeting I had with him, he showed me this. He took it out of his pocket, and he said, I always have this with me. This is a man who knew thousands of lines of poetry in Persian, off by heart, and who was renowned for being able to quote appropriate verses in Persian for every situation. Persians would be amazed that this American could do this. But this American, who knew reams of, of the great poets, all of them, what was the book that came to his help at the end of his life when he suffered from quite a deep depression? According to his wife, Jane, Jane Lewis. This was the book. He brought it out of his pocket. He didn't tell me he was suffering, though. But he just said, I read this nearly every day, five or six times. I just, and that's why I can't open the book. I'm too frightened. It's so well leafed. It's like, you know, it's falling apart. He opened it repeatedly every day. And everything he read, it was like Imam Ali coming to him and helping him. He didn't tell me he was suffering from it. Jane told me afterwards. This is an incredible, powerful book of supplications. And Lenny Lewis, at the end of his life, was able to bring himself out of that depression through the supplications of um, uh, Imam Ali. Now, I have to use this other copy, because as I say, it's, it's on the verge of being torn to pieces, that one. Um, and I'm going to read something that will lead into your, your question. Let me just actually give a little context to this first. That um, When Rumi tells us that we have to become aware of our... Of, we have to suffer, not aware, we have to suffer in order to become receptive to his description of the pain of longing. So there are these two dimensions of the pain. We first have to suffer. And why do we have to suffer? We will suffer to the extent that we become aware of our own, not necessarily our sins, that we may not have committed sins that will make us suffer in this world. Think, oh, what a dreadful person I've been pain of repentance, it seems. But the pain that comes from recognizing what Jung would call the shadow, what we call the nafs al-amara, that within ourselves there is a soul, a tendency to do evil, even if we haven't done terrible evil. Dr. Lings, Dr. Martin Lings, my great teacher, Sheikh Abu Sirajuddin, He's written about this more revealingly, perhaps, in his book on Shakespeare than in any other book. The Secret of Shakespeare. And he talks about how the restoration of one's true primordial nature requires a fight to the finish that in Hamlet, for example, is symbolized by revenge, the killing of the uncle the man who had murdered Hamlet's father. He has to kill his uncle. Now that uncle stands for the nafs al-amara, the soul that has to be, have to be what? Unforgiving, use that word. We have to have no mercy when it comes to recognizing 
that dimension of our soul which is capable of evil. The capacity to do evil, the susceptibility to evil insinuation. So that the soul, the nafs, and shaitan become one and the same thing. Rumi says here in one of these, the carnal self, the nafs al-amara, is hell. It's not just a shadow that we have to kind of be a little bit indulgent of and say, well, this is part of the, e the ego, the persona, the projection, have to be aware of it, blah, 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 the Jungian approach. That doesn't work. It's far too gentle. It's far too accommodating to the ego. This says, I read it for you. It's, this is verse 1375 of book one. This nafs, this self, is hell. And this hell is a dragon whose fire is not diminished by oceans of water. It would drink up the seven seas and still the blazing of that consumer of creatures would not become less. This is the hell that we possess within ourselves. We're all very fond of saying, God is somehow within me. But we're not very happy to say, Shaitan is within me. Iblis is within me. Hell is within me. But Rumi is saying, this is what you've got to recognize. If you're going to feel the degree of your separation from your celestial reality, you've got to see this is hell. And the more indulgent you are with that hell, the more you're falling into its insatiable fire. It will never be satisfied. And you pour all this uh, water onto it. And then he quotes Yoma. He, he says... Um, now I can't remember if he cites this directly, but the he, the Quran says, "Yoma nakulu le jahannam halim talati wa takulu hal min mazid." This is in the Surah Qaf, uh, Surah number fifty. God says, "We say to hell, are you filled up yet?" And hell says, "Can there be more?" more, but hell will never get sufficiently satisfied. That's what Rumi is saying. There's this bottomless pit, this burning, raging fire in your soul. And until you recognize it and address it, you will never be able to feel the pain of separation that would be the prelude for your understanding the path that leads to the ecstasy of reunion. It's, it's very radical, it's uncompromising. So Imam Ali helps us to see this when he says, this, the, the Dua Komel, the Dua that was revealed, it actually, Imam Ali says it came to him from Al-Khidr, the green man. And uh, he refers to Al-Khidr as my brother. He said, this was given to me, and so Imam Ali gives it to all of us. He says, this is what you should recite. And it's all about his brokenness. It says here, I, My master, I ask thee by thy might not to let my evil works and my acts veil my supplication from thee, not to disgrace me through the hidden things thou knowest of my secrets. These are not acts that be done outwardly. It's the evil things that you know and you alone know what I am capable of and what thoughts I've had. What intentions I've had that I may not have put into practice, but you know it all. Don't disgrace me through the hidden things you know of my secrets. 
Don't hasten me to punishment for what I've done in private. My evil acts in secrecy, my misdeeds, my continuous negligence, my ignorance, my manifold passions and my forgetfulness. What does this remind you of? Hamlet. I am myself indifferent, honest, and yet I could accuse myself of such things as would make my mother wish she never bore me. Then he gives this long list, similar to this. I'm proud, I'm arrogant, I'm this. These are all things that people don't see. Because I myself, I'm indifferent, I'm honest, I'm a pretty good guy. But you people don't know what I'm capable of and what I've thought about doing and what I've had to draw myself back from doing. You know it all, God, and I have to look to you to help me to overcome all this. My God and my Lord, have I any but thee from whom to ask removal of my affliction? My God and my protector, thou put into effect through me a decree in which I followed the caprice of my own soul. And here we have the word hawa, the desire of my own soul. And I did not remain wary of the adornment of my enemy. Now, according to Rumi, the enemy and the hawa are one and the same thing. It's that hawa, this caprice, this whim, this desire, what in Buddhism is called this, this tanha, trishna, that when the Buddha spoke about the four noble truths, what is the core of it? How do you overcome suffering in this world? It comes from trishna, dukkha. It's the, it's the first of the noble truths. You're suffering in this world. You're in a house that's on fire and you don't even know it. How do you become aware of it? How do you overcome it? By seeing that you have this thing called Krishna, Tanha, first desire for yourself. And once you've overcome that desire through noble eightfold path, then you will get rid of suffering and you go from Dukkha to Nirvana. You go from what Rumi just said, you heard earlier. But once you overcome your Hawa and your Shahwa, your desire and your lust, this world becomes sharbat and sharbatas, wine, sweetness, within sweetness. Everywhere you look, there's the face of God. It's exactly the same as the Buddhist idea of going from dukkha to nirvana by overcoming Krishna, overcoming this thing called hawa in Arabic. And the Quran makes it very explicit as well in two verses, almost identical wording. So to Jathiya, verse uh, 23, I think it's 45, 23, and in another surah. Uh, Do you see, the Quran says this, Do you see the one who takes as his God his own hawa? That's the shirk. That's polytheism. That's associating something with God, giving God partners. You're doing it when you worship your own desire as if it were God. And that worship doesn't mean you're setting up some idol. It means that you, you listen to and you follow the promptings of your own desire as opposed to what God wants from you. That makes you fall into what the Prophet called a shirk al-khafi, the hidden polytheism, where you're worshipping, implicitly worshipping your own self. And the Prophet also said, shirk al-khafi, the hidden shirk, is more difficult to detect than a, an ant on a moonless night, meaning in the desert, complete blackness. There's no moon, light of the moon, completely dark. And then on a black rock, there is an ant that's crawling. And the Prophet said, 
detecting your hidden shirk, your hidden polytheism, your hidden worship of your own ego is more difficult than to detect the movement of an ant on a black rock in a moonless night. That's how subtle it is. And that's how much. Without, it's not just introspection or dream analysis that's going to get you to see that. It is one, one thing only, which is the polishing up of your own heart so that your spirit can see what your soul is incapable of seeing. It's not the psychological experience of one's own hidden polytheism that can lead to you overcoming it. It's the spiritual perception of the soul's fall into hidden polytheism that can only come about through what the, the Prophet said, the kulli shay'in siqalatun wa siqalatul qulub dhikrullah. For everything there is a means of polishing. And the means of polishing the heart is remembering God. It's what we had right at the beginning. Saying Allah, 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 invocation of the divine name. Whether it, in the Muslim context it's dhikr Allah, in the Christian context the Jesus prayer, in the Hindu context japa yoga, calling on the name of Ram, Krishna, in the Buddhist context, the Nembutsu, Nama Amida Butsu, in all the traditions. So, Imam Ali says, I did not remain wary of my enemy's adornment. So he deluded me through my soul's caprice, my soul's hawa. So in what was put into effect through me in that situation, I transgressed some of thy statutes. I disobeyed some of thy commands. Now the, the, the amazing thing about this dua, this supplication, is that it speaks to every single person on the level of their own intelligence and spiritual sensibility. For someone who really has sinned, with the major sins, and they read this dua, they say, yeah, I mean, I'm in that position. I need God's forgiveness. Please forgive me. And the only way I can live and survive in this fire of hell is if you forgive me. The fire of, of seeing what I've done, not just in terms of the act of the sin, but the consequences, the suffering that I have inflicted on others. And that's what the, in a sense, the, the, the greatest pain comes from that. When we're told that on the day of judgment, uh, the Yom Al-Qiyamah, and in fact we should remember that in the Surah Al-Qiyamah, God swears, he said, لا أقسم بيوم القيامة ولا أقسم بالنفس اللوامة God says, I swear by the day of judgment, by the day of resurrection. But nay, I swear by the soul that's accusing itself. The nafs al-lawama, the self-blaming soul. As if to say, there is a microcosmic correspondence in the soul to what happens on the day of judgment. That when you start to blame yourself for what you've done, you are doing what the Prophet told you to do, which is, ha sibu qabla an tuha sabu. Take yourselves to account before you are taken to account. Look at what you've done, because if you, when you get to the day of judgment and you haven't taken yourself to account, you will be miserable, you will be wretched, because you will be told on the day of judgment, Read your book, 
We're not told that there's going to be some man in the sky who comes down with a judge, with a, with a long white beard and a judge's gown and say, you need to go to hell and you need to go to heaven. We'll be told, every one of us will find our book wide open and we'll be told, read your own book. Your own soul is sufficient today as a judge over yourself. So, when we see this, in, in absolute wretchedness, at seeing what we have done to others and what suffering we've inflicted upon others. And then what happens? The fire of hell is nothing other than that fire of the suffering that we've inflicted upon others that now we're experiencing in a far more intense manner than just the physical suffering. That's why the fires of hell are just minor compared to the psychological suffering comes when you really are taking upon yourself the suffering you've inflicted on others. It's magnified, manifold. So, Imam Ali says in one part in this dua, وَكَيْفَ يَتَقَلْقَلُ بَيْنَ أَطْبَاقِهَا وَأَنْتَ تَعْلَمُ صِدْقَهُ How can you leave me being convulsed in these fires of hell while you know that I am, I am sincere? I know about you, I love you, I'm, I believe in you, I know you're merciful, but how can you leave me in this hell? Now that is speaking, not just to the sinner who has committed awful sins and is taking upon himself the repentance, the tawbah, and seeing the suffering of that's the, that's the pain and suffering of someone who has fallen into that sin of arrogance and pride, of uju. Imam Ali says, every single one of your actions that has a trace of ujub or riya. Ujub comes from the root ajaba, marveling at something. But ujub becomes self-marveling. Any act that you perform when it's accompanied by a sense of self-satisfaction and riya, which is showing off, ostentation, doing it for the sake of others to say, as you said earlier, vaha. Any act that's accompanied by ujub or riya is an act of shirk. The one unforgivable sin in the whole armory of sin, God says that he will never forget, forgive this act of shirk, of associating something, a false divinity with God. This is what God cannot forgive, and that's why I'm saying we're unforgiving when it comes to doing this, to associate our own soul and our egotistic desire, being our God, and then that's what we do every time we're showing off and every time we have self-satisfaction. And when we're aware of that, and we're aware of the purity and beauty of God, by contrast, then what do you do? You're in that hell with Imam Ali's, in that, what Imam Ali's describing. You are the Arif, you're the, the knower of God. You're sincere, but you're being convulsed by the hells. How can I keep falling into this pit of bottomless fire when I sat myself and I say, well, you know, you did a good job there, or you, know, you got some really good applause. You know. That is hell for someone who is really fighting this jihad. And Imam Ali is speaking to that person just as much as he's speaking to an ordinary sinner. So I think, I think that was what I wanted to come to Imam Ali. And I think we need to have a...
a few more questions. Uh, actually, perhaps? I think we're we're oh, fresh out of time. I'm afraid. Time. Yes, <laughs> time truly is uh, is what uh, what causes pain. Uh, <laughs> um, I, I, I don't even know how to how to thank you for for uh, uh, the refocusing of the soul uh, that you've allowed us to do, uh, separating the pain of separation from the pain of sin, and the remarkable gift that Rumi shows us that the, the one thing that is absent is despair, mm. and the idea that you don't have to despair as a human being. And also the idea that pain is, uh, although unpleasant, um, a human condition. And particularly, I think, in this day and age where it is considered to be uh, um, unmarketable, perhaps uh, inefficient to feel pain, um, it is what keeps us human, and it goes to the core of our uh, ontology. So consider it then to actually be a human virtue. Dr. Reza Shakazami. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you.